0: My name is Rob O'Hara, but for the next 30 minutes, you can call me Flack. Greetings and salutations, listeners, and welcome to episode 175 of You Don't Know Flack. Today is June 12th, 2016, and I am your host, Rob Flack O'Hara. On today's show, we have something uh, that I haven't done before. On today, we're doing a top 10 list, and this is a list of the top 10. 10 hardest hits that I have taken in my life, (laughs) the top 10 times I have been physically hit uh, in my life. Now, I've been uh, on a trip for the past uh, week and a half, and one of the things I did was stop in West Virginia and met up with the guys from the Amigos podcast. If you like uh, the Amiga computer, if you're a fan of the Amiga, you should be listening to... Uh, the Amigos podcast, and we had a lot of uh, chats about Commodore computers, and I was able to use my emulator and type in all my notes for this week's show. So uh, while I convert those over, that will give us a few minutes to chat during this week's Loading Time. Loading Time. Loading Time. Loading Time. Well, hello and welcome back to the show. It has been uh, a couple of weeks. The weekend before last, my family and I went on a mini vacation to Pigeon Forge, Tennessee. Pigeon Forge, Tennessee is uh the home of Dollywood, which used to be Silver Dollar City or it's right right next to Dollywood. And uh this is my second time to spend any time in Pigeon Forge. The first time was in 1982, uh, when we visited the, uh, state fair or not the state fair, the uh, world's fair, A world's fair was held in 1982 in Knoxville, Tennessee. And the closest we could get was Pigeon Forge, Tennessee. And so when I was nine years old, we stayed in Pigeon Forge and we did all the fun touristy kind of things. It's one of those kind of cities. that's just filled. It, it's a lot like Branson. If you've ever been to Branson, uh, it's just filled with places to eat and little museums, Ripley's, uh, believe it or not, and wax museums. And we went to the Titanic museum this time with my, uh, well, the whole family went, but my daughter's really into Titanic right now. And so, uh, we had a really uh, good time. We also got to see the world's largest Rubik's cube. And I had seen that it was given, uh, presented as a gift in the 1982 world's fair. And I have pictures of me with it when I was nine years old. And my son is all into uh, Rubik's cubes right now. He has his own, he has a Rubik's cube website. I think it's out of date already. It was masoncubes.com. And, uh, so when we were in Knoxville, I wanted to go see it again. It was lost for, uh. I think like 25 years and someone found it, they reassembled it and it is, uh, in the, uh, kind of an atrium area of the holiday inn, which is right next to the sun globe in Knoxville, Tennessee. So we went in the holiday inn, we went to go see the Rubik's cube. We took a bunch of dumb pictures and then hit the road. So when the vacation was over, My family came back to Oklahoma and I traveled on to Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, where I spent all of last week uh, in government buildings and government meetings and doing government things and speaking government ease and all those things that are not fun, but pay the bills and keep the lights on here at You Don't Know Flag. So that's where I've been. Uh, On the way there, let's see, let me think about this. We drove not just to Oklahoma, through Arkansas, through Tennessee, uh, then we would have hit North Carolina and then Virginia uh, before hitting uh, Washington, D.C. And then on the way back, as I mentioned, I I went across Maryland into West Virginia, and that is where I met up with the hosts of the Amigos podcast, uh, Boat and uh, Aaron, We uh, did some recording, we played some Amiga games, we played uh, Buggy Boy for the Commodore 64 and the Amiga. I'll probably talk about Buggy Boy uh, on an upcoming episode of Sprite Castle here in a few weeks. Uh, But we just had a good time hanging out. It's always cool to meet up with uh, uh, other podcasters and friends of the show and things like that. So uh, thanks again uh, for having me over, guys. We had a really good time. Um, and then I got to meet another listener while I was in Washington, DC, and this is a crazy story. This probably deserves more time, uh, than I'm going to give it on this episode, but I was contacted about a month ago by a gentleman who I did not know. His name was Dave and Dave said, you don't know me. I don't know you, but we have some friends in common. And, uh, Dave's story was that he lives in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and that he had purchased an oscilloscope, uh, a couple of years ago on eBay from someone who was selling it in Oklahoma city. And, uh, after he purchased it, he was unable to get it shipped to Pittsburgh. Apparently this thing was, uh, I mean, it's a large oscilloscope. This is probably a hundred pounds Uh, it's probably a foot and a half tall, maybe a foot wide and maybe two foot deep. And he asked me, well, he's had it stored at another friend's house and this, uh, friend who's been storing it needed it gone. It's been there for a couple of years and he's had some life changes and he needed it, uh, uh, moved. So Dave wanted to know if I could go pick up the oscilloscope and, uh, from his, his friend. So I did some searching. It looked, he didn't live that far away. It was about 20 minutes away. So I said, sure. I went and picked it up, brought it back to my house. And then I remembered that I was going to be uh, going to Washington, D.C. And so I said, you know, if we went on this vacation and then I drove to D.C. that I could bring the oscilloscope with me. And so that's what I did. I put it in the back of my truck. I drove it to uh, Washington, D.C., and uh tried to hook up with Dave, but uh Dave was unable to come to d c to pick it up, but he had a third friend, uh Alex, who uh said that he would be uh available to uh during that time to come pick it up so on the last evening that I was in washington d c uh, Alex came to my hotel uh, there was a whole Uh, adventure with trying to get a uh, baggage cart, the Holiday Inn, said that uh, customers are no longer allowed to use luggage carts because they are uh, a liability and people, guests could get hurt if you use them, which is the most ridiculous thing. (laughs) Uh, I just hate where this country uh, has gone. I mean, just in the way that, you know, that we have to be protective of everyone, everywhere, it's just really silly. So so I paid a bellhop $3 to go to the parking garage and get this oscilloscope from the back of my truck and wheel it out to the front and load it into uh, Alex's car. And then I learned that Alex is a listener of You Don't Know Flack and Sprite Castle. So Alex was the missing piece of the puzzle. I didn't know how everything related to me until I met Alex. Uh, and I also didn't know... That Dave is the owner of LSSM, also known as the Large Scale Systems Museum, which is in uh, New Kensington, Pennsylvania. And I've looked on Facebook, and there's some pretty awesome stuff at LSSM. I see all these, looks like large mainframes and big things, and I think the oscilloscope is going to be a great fit at the Large Scale Systems Museum. I need, you know what? I need a plaque. Uh, if they put this on display, I assume it's a display piece and not something he's purchased to troubleshoot, uh, the other things that are there, I guess that's possible. But, um, if it does go on display, it needs a plaque that says this was brought here by Rob O'Hara of you don't know, flack <laughs> podcast. It's the only way anything of mine will get in a museum. So, uh, anyway, uh, it was great to meet Alex and we I passed off the oscilloscope so I drove the oscilloscope uh 1400 miles basically from Oklahoma to Washington DC and then Alex has picked it up and Alex is going to uh, continue it on its journey up to Pittsburgh so uh I feel like I did my part <laughs> and uh I should mention that uh, Dave did offer to pay me uh for my time and gas money and I told him that I think it's a better story if I did it for free <laughs> and I think, um, you know, if I needed a favor something like that, I would, I would want somebody to help me out like that too. So, so anyway, that is the oscilloscope story and that's how it got uh, from Oklahoma, went on vacation with us to pigeon forge, Tennessee <laughs> and continued on its route to Oklahoma city. I got a lot of feedback from the last episode. The last episode was uh, about some of my car adventures. I say some because after I listened back to the episode, I couldn't believe how many stories I forgot to mention during that episode. Uh, The most common feedback I got from that episode were variations of the following two comments. One, uh, I would never ride in a car with you. That you being me. And the other, uh, saying that my insurance must have been sky high. And, um, for as far as the insurance goes, yes, my insurance went up and that's why I had so many motorcycles in between some of the cars because motorcycle insurance is very inexpensive, especially liability. I think I remember paying maybe $50 uh, every six months for liability for motorcycle insurance. So sometimes I, um, if I got that, uh, Uh, too many tickets or things like that, you know, they would drop off after a while. And so I I would get a motorcycle and pay for cheap insurance until, uh, um, my record would (laughs) clean up a little bit. Uh, and as far as not riding in a car with me, uh, I have not got as much as a speeding ticket in probably 15 years now. Uh, the only time I've even been pulled over was due to a, uh, headlight out and my headlight wasn't even out. Um, I had a running light out. Uh, and so um, when I pointed that out to the officer, he said, oh, well, I should get that fixed, which I agreed that I should get it fixed, but, um, it, you're not required to have, uh, working running lights. And so there was no, no citation issued. So yeah, these were all stories pretty much from my youth when I was, uh, a bit of a terror behind the wheel, but I have, uh, straightened up since then. And, you know, I just drove 1400 miles each way, uh, to Washington DC and back and didn't even have an officer look at me. I usually put crews at about five over. That's usually, that's usually about where I hit. Um, so I did have a few stories, a couple of stories that I forgot. And, and as I was, uh, telling my wife about the episode, she said, Oh, Uh, did you tell the story, you know, about, um, the kid that hit your car on a bicycle? And I said, no, I forgot about that. You know, there was a, uh, I was, I was driving one time I was in line to pull out of a parking lot and a kid ran into my car, into the side of my car, like a, almost like a comedy skit and flew across, uh, the hood of my car and he was completely in the wrong I wasn't doing anything wrong, but I, I was so shocked that I wasn't sure what to do. I got out and I was in high school. Uh, I got out and, um, asked him if he was okay. And he said, yeah. And, and, uh, you know, there was a small dent on my car, but it wasn't bad. And, and so we didn't know what to do. So we both went home. And, uh, so anyway, and this was a kid that I didn't really know. Um, he went to my school, but we weren't, we weren't really friends. And when he went home, his bike was all messed up. It turns out this was a pretty expensive racing bicycle and his parents wanted to know what had happened to his bike. And so he said that I had hit and run into him, which obviously, if you looked at the damage on my car is not possible. I mean, the, the dent was directly in the side of my front fender. There was no way I could have hit him. It was obvious that, that he had run into me on his bicycle. Uh, but he told his parents that I had run over him, and based on that, uh, his parents called the police, and they reported it as a hit-and-run accident, and we got a call from the police department, and then uh, the the kid's father came to our house trying to collect money for the bicycle, and uh, I was not allowed to go to the front door. My father went to the front door uh and handled that situation and I couldn't hear everything he said but um those people never contacted us again <laughs> and uh also the police came out took a picture of my car and that was the last uh that was that was said of that it was, again it was very obvious that I had not um you know hit that person uh that that person had had driven their bike into me so uh I forgot to mention that story and then uh, there was a uh Another story I forgot to mention in my um when I had my Ford Festiva, that uh, I was delivering pizza one night and it was raining and I was trying to get uh, uh to uh you know to a house to deliver a pizza and I turned into a neighborhood and I turned uh too sharply it was a left-hand turn and I ended up hitting the center median the big concrete median and when I did uh immediately it knocked the transmission out I mean a Festiva is not really made to, um, you know, take an impact like that. Uh, so the car was not drivable and I hopped out of the car and I, I ran to the guy's house with the pizza. And then I asked if I could use his phone because I told him I just wrecked my car. <laughs> so I wanted to get the pizza there first. Um, and then I called my friend. I was like, Oh, we can't tell my parents. So my, my buddy showed up with uh, he had a S10 pickup and we towed it to his house. I remember we measured the car and, The left-hand side was like three inches shorter than the right-hand side. It it really (laughs) compressed the car. But the bigger problem, obviously, was that the transmission uh, didn't work. You could just shift into any gear and nothing happened. And so eventually my parents, I say eventually that night when I went home, uh, I was a terrible liar as a kid. Like I went home and I said, oh, yeah, I just forgot I left my car at someone else's house. And they were like, okay, that's dumb. And I'm like, okay, yeah, I wrecked it. I mean, <laughs> I did not have good cover stories. And so, um, uh, we, we took it, I had to go get it realigned and they actually had like a frame stretcher, I believe to try to straighten out the frame. And we did that. Um, but, uh, uh, a, a friend of a friend, I had a friend who also owned a Ford Festiva and his dad worked at a Ford, uh, you know, uh, like a, a dealership in the, um, repair section. And so we went to go see him to, to ask him about the transmission and literally the transmission pops into place. It presses in and locks in. There's no, not even uh, bolts or anything that holds it in. So we went home and, and popped the transmission back in and the Festiva was back on the road, baby. (laughs) It was good as new. And so, um, yeah, there, and there were many other stories like that as well, but, um, they didn't all get in there. I don't think there's enough for a second episode, but, um, but yeah, there, there were others. So anyway, if you have uh, feedback about this episode or any other episode of the show in general, you can email your feedback to me at Rob O'Hara at Rob Drop me a message on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash. You don't know. Flack. Follow me on Twitter at Commodore or leave me a voice message on my podcast hotline at 405-486-YDKF. That sound means that uh, the episode has fully loaded my notes over here, and so now we can get into this top 10 list episode of the top 10 hardest hits I have taken in my life. Now, there are a couple of times on this list where I got hit (laughs) really hard. Uh, and you know, you always say things like, oh, that's the hardest I ever got hit in my life or whatever. And for some reason I had two or three stories like that and I decided to uh, rank them <laughs> like this was the hardest I ever got hit. This is the second hardest hit I ever took. And, uh, I, I know the list, the, the phrasing of this is awkward. Uh, but I, I sat down the other day and it was after the car episode and I said, you know, I bet I could come up with four or five of these, and that would make a good episode. And the problem is, I came up with about seven, and seven is a dumb number for a list. Like, nobody wants to hear your top seven anything. Uh, so I padded the list a little bit and uh, and got it up to ten. So the, these first few uh, are not ones that I think of when I think, oh, when's the... Do you remember the ninth hardest you were ever hit? I, you know, I don't really think that way, but, um, definitely probably the top five are, uh, are all ones. And so these all have little stories associated with them. So we'll go ahead and get started with, uh, uh, the top 10 hardest hits I have ever taken. And of course we will go through the list, uh, from 10 being the uh, least hardest all the way up to number one. So, uh, number 10. And this is more of a icebreaker. This was not a very hard hit, uh, but it is one that was memorable. Uh, It was the first time that I ever got hit uh, by anybody that I can really remember. And uh, it was over an Oreo cookie. (laughs) Uh, So this took place in kindergarten. And in kindergarten, uh, we had a quiet time, and so we would all... Uh, we had to sit at our little desks and there were like four desks, uh, that would face each other in a square. And so we would sit there with our four little, uh, or, you know, our other three table mates and, um, uh, right. I, I think it was right before recess, the teacher would come around and give everyone one Oreo. And so, uh, The teacher came around and put an Oreo in front of me, Oreo in front of the two other people, and an Oreo in front of a kid named Buddy. And, uh, Buddy, I mean, in my head, looks like he would have been a sixth grader. Uh, he he was just this big giant kid with a big giant head. Uh, (laughs) and, um, uh, I remember Buddy said, Hey, and he pointed at something and I looked and then when I looked back... Uh, he had two Oreos and I had no Oreos. Uh, and I, I think I even cried or something. I don't remember, but we, then after that, we went out to recess. Uh, and so anyway, uh, the next day I told the teacher that buddy had taken my Oreo the previous day and, uh, he said, no, I didn't know I did. But of course I was, you know, a great little teacher's pet. And so the teacher gave me two Oreos and didn't give one to Buddy. And I thought, ha, 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 that's what you get, Buddy. And we ate our Oreos, and we went out on the playground, and I said, ha, ha, you stole my Oreo yesterday, and I got your Oreo. And he turned around and punched me in the stomach. (laughs) Uh, I was not ready. I don't know that you're ever ready uh, when you're in kindergarten to get punched in the stomach. Uh, but it hurt. I remember it hurt. And, uh, then he just walked away and I didn't say anything else about Oreos or getting punched by buddy because I didn't want to get punched, uh, more by buddy. But that is the oldest story on my list. The earliest, uh, hit that I took. And, uh, again, uh, in retrospect, I'm sure it wasn't very hard, but it was very, uh, uh unexpected, it was very surprising. And also it was, um, a good lesson. There was a good lesson in that sometimes, uh, you keep your mouth shut. Uh, you know, it's certainly the Oreo, although it tasted good when I ate, it was not worth, uh, the punch in the gut <laughs> that I got a few moments later. So that is number 10 on the list. Uh, number nine also took place at school. It took place in a cafeteria. Uh, and after we ate lunch, we went and stood on risers. And so we were, we were standing on risers and there was a, uh, uh a kid named Frank, uh, who I don't even I I don't have one memory of Frank and this is it. So I don't remember him in any of our classes. I don't remember. I mean, I knew who he was from the hallway, but I don't remember anything about this kid. And, uh, we were standing on the risers in the, uh, uh, you know, basically in the gym. So after lunch, we went over to uh, the gym and there were risers and you could go up there uh, and this kid had uh had done something I don't remember maybe said something dumb in class or something, but people were making fun of him and this would have been seventh grade probably seventh or eighth grade and uh so we were climbing up, and everyone was giving this kid a hard time you know and um uh, and I think I probably joined in even though i he wasn't in my class. Uh, so I had no right or reason to join in on heckling this kid. Um, but, uh, I did. And as we walked by, he sucker punched me right in the nose. It was, uh, now I had been in karate for a few years at that point. I started taking karate lessons in third grade. So I had been hit. Uh, but most of the times when I had been hit, Uh, a, it was by another kid who was wearing padded gloves or I was wearing a, a headpiece. Uh, and, and, um, I knew it was coming and I didn't know this was coming. This guy turned around and I was obviously the weakest, (laughs) least threatening person in the bleacher area. And so he took it out on me and hit me right in the nose and, and instantly you know, my eyes started watering. I had a bloody nose. I went to the bathroom. I didn't tell a teacher or anything because I thought, you know, I was, I felt like I was in the wrong by, uh, you know, heckling this kid or whatever too, even though I'm sure he would have been the one to get in trouble, not me. Uh, but, um, yeah, that was, um, uh, I, again, not a super hard hit, but one I wasn't expecting. Uh, I also, you know, I now today, like when you watch the movies and people fight and they get hit in the nose and then they just keep coming, I think, boy, that wasn't me. <laughs> I'm not a guy you could punch in the nose. Uh, and I will get up and keep fighting you. I will be in the bathroom crying. Uh, if I can find the bathroom because my eyes are watering so much. Um, so yeah, I'm not really a guy that's going to stand there and take a, I mean, you know, back then, I, I don't know. I, it's been a long time since anybody's punched me in the face um <laughs> but um uh yeah I, I definitely remember that one i also remember worrying that i was going to fall down the bleachers you know but uh, fortunately that didn't happen i just kind of turned away uh and immediately walked off but uh, that was number 9 uh on the list number 8 was the fight i got in with a kid named david now David uh, had been held back I believe two grades either he started late and then got held back or he was held back uh two grades uh, so th- and he was a grade above me so I was in 5th grade and he should have been in 8th grade <laughs> He was I was a 5th grade child and this guy had a mustache. That was the difference uh, between us. I mean, he, he was like a man uh, who went to school with us. And I don't remember, there wasn't really an instigation other than the word had got out that I was taking karate. And so someone had told me uh, that David wanted to fight me, and which was like saying Charles Manson uh, wants to come over to your house and practice stabbing things. I mean, this was like a death sentence. I hadn't done anything, uh, to deserve this. And it was just like, my number was up. Like David had beat up everybody. Um, there was a, a rumor. I don't know if this is true, but there was a rumor that he had, um, it it was a, a single parent situation and there were three kids and that he had got in trouble or something and had gone in and like stabbed, uh, his waterbed mattress or something with a knife. And I mean, there were all these weird rumors and, you know, I, I don't know if they were true or not, but, but I thought they were true as a kid, which was good enough. You know what I mean? Uh, enough for you to be afraid of this guy. So, um, uh, we, we rode the bus to school and then before school, we had like half an hour, uh, before, school started and everyone was, was gathered in this area and David was there and I knew there was no avoiding this. And so I went over and, um, I thought if he hit me, my plan was to play possum. So my plan was once he hit me, I was just going to lay there and, and, um, hope that he went away. Uh, but he did not go away. He hit me and then hit me again and again and again, and I remember my most vivid memory of this was that there was a chain link fence and I remember him like running my body down the fence. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just mercilessly, uh, beat me for several minutes and I had this oversized flannel shirt and he, and my shirt got ripped on the fence. And so, uh, finally, I guess he just got bored he, if I had to compare him to somebody, I would compare him to Michael Myers, uh, from Halloween. Like he had no emotion. Like he wasn't mad. He wasn't enjoying it. He just, it was my turn to get beaten by this monster. And that's what he did. Uh, and so, um uh, when I went to class, I sat in the front row and here I am, my hair is a mess. I have leaves, all over me from falling repeatedly. Uh, I'm sure that I had bruises, uh, and my shirt is ripped and the teacher says, uh, the kid said you were fighting outside. Is that true? And I was like, well, I wasn't fighting so much as I was just being pummeled, you know? And she said, well, you need to go to the principal's office. And so I left and I, I walked halfway down the hallway and I thought, why am I going to the principal's office? I didn't do anything. And so I just stood in the hallway for about 10 minutes and came back. And she said, what did the principal say? And I said, uh, something to the effect of, he said, I didn't do anything wrong. And so she just shrugged it off. And then the class went on and nothing was ever said about it. And the guy never talked to me again or whatever. and, And that was the end of it. But, um, David Hard Hitter (laughs) and David Punching Me on the Playground Before School uh, ranks number eight on this list. Now, uh, not all of these were people punching me, and that's where we get to number seven on the list. And this is a story about how Rob O'Hara does not understand uh, how physics works. And there are a few stories like that on uh, this episode. I was big into skateboarding in the, uh, there was a big skateboarding resurgence in the mid to late eighties. And when I got my first car, even when I had my motorcycle, I would ride around with my skateboard, uh, on the back. We would drive around looking for, um, ditches and, um, you know, drainage areas to skate, uh, because we would watch all these, uh, videos that took place in California where there would be empty swimming pools and ditches. And then we would drive around Oklahoma and we could never find, uh, those types of things, but that didn't stop us from looking. We drove around and we looked for these, uh, hidden skate spots. And, uh, when we got our cars, we kept our skateboards in our trunk, you know, for the same thing. And so, Uh, there was a large bank that went out of business and, um, it was abandoned. So, and it was right by our high school. And so occasionally my friends and I would uh, go pick up our lunch. We had an open campus. We would pick up our lunch and all meet in the bank parking lot and just sit, you know, uh, on the hoods of our cars or in the, you know, open up the, the trunks and lean there and eat lunch and just hang out there. So this was in the winter, probably the winter of 89 could have been the winter of 90, either my junior or senior year. Uh, and we were in the bank parking lot and there was a big area of ice, uh, a big sheet of ice and we were eating and someone said, you know, you could run and slide on that. And I said, you know what? And I, I got this mental image of me riding across it. On a skateboard. And so my, my idea was I would hit it with the skateboard and then turn the skateboard 180 degrees. Uh, no, 90 degrees. So I would turn it and then turn the skateboard sideways and slide on the ice. And then when I got to the other side, I would whip the skateboard back, uh, straight and keep riding. That's how I imagined this happening in my head. Uh, here's what really happened. I started going on the parking lot. I hit the sheet of ice. Uh, I saw the sky. I saw the skateboard flying across the sky. And then I landed on my elbow and I hit my elbow so hard. It was like hitting my funny bone that went through half of my body. Uh, it was the most painful thing. Uh, (laughs) And it's only number seven on the list. Um, and it, what happened, my elbow swelled up and I could, and it like locked into that position. I couldn't move it, but I didn't want to tell my parents what I had done because it was such a stupid uh, story. So I made, uh, a sling. (laughs) I made my own sling out of a black sock and a shoestring. And so I ran this shoestring. I tied the, well, I ran the shoestring. Uh, I cut a hole in the toe of the sock. I ran the string through it and then I tied the string, uh, into a knot, the shoestring into a knot. And so I would put it over my, my head and then it hung down and I would rest my arm, you know, where the sock was. And I wore this to school for a week Um, I'm sure my teachers, this is not the only time I would say this, but I'm sure my teachers thought I was either an idiot, um, or just a bizarre child. And I'm not saying those two things aren't true (laughs) or weren't true or aren't true. Uh, but yeah, so I, I had this homemade rig of a sling that I kept my arm in until the uh, swelling went down and I tried to, um, I did hide it from uh, my parents. I don't know why. I would do that because my parents, um, might have taken me to the doctor. Probably not. They probably would have got me an ice pack and, and laughed <laughs> that I would have tried, uh, such a thing. But, uh, when I drive by that to this day, I mean, that's been 25 years when I drive by that parking lot, I think of that story every time, uh, that I see that parking lot. So yeah, that, that makes number seven on the list. The sixth hardest that I have ever been hit uh is the uh let's see scanning my list here one of two stories uh that involves uh law enforcement, I guess you would say. The other one's not really law enforcement, it's more security, but um my town of Yukon, Oklahoma kind of has a small town mentality. I love living here. I love the people. I love all the stuff about, uh, Yukon. But when I was a kid, I did not love the local police force, the local police force, um, kind of harassed people. Uh, I would say now I would say, thank goodness that they were (laughs) harassing people like us. But, uh, when you're a kid, you don't see it that way. Uh, as a kid, I was like, How do they always, you know, why do they always pull us over? And, you know, we would look at each other and and my friend Jeff and Andy, they both had Z-28s. I had a, the formula Firebird. Um, my other friend Scott had a 64 Chevelle with straight pipes, uh, and a front plate that said cherry bomb. (laughs) So looking now, I mean, we were the equivalent, you can see kids today, you know, with, um, uh, you know, little Hondas or, you know, for a long time, it was like lowered trucks. I mean, people, kids that look like they're probably up to no good. And I'm sure that's exactly, uh, what my friends and I looked like. And so, um, we were riding in Jeff's car and Jeff had the 1980 Z 28 and we were doing nothing wrong. Absolutely nothing. And we went through an intersection and a police officer pulled behind us and flipped on their lights and we pulled over. So as we were getting ready to get out of the car and the officer said, stay in the car. And then another officer pulled up and then we had to get out of the car. So, uh, this was, it was cold. I remember it was, it was chilly and, uh, I had this leather coat and there was a, like a breast pocket on the inside of the coat. And for whatever reason, I had my wallet in that, that pocket. And so, uh, the officer comes up and accuses us of drag racing, but we are driving down main street in Yukon where the speed limit is 25. So, and we weren't speeding. So how could we be drag racing? I mean, this is ridiculous. This is just a thing for them to pull us over and see what we were up to. And that happened a lot. I mean, I it wouldn't be an interesting podcast, but I could fill an hour-long podcast of times where I got pulled over for no reason. Uh, and officers, they would um, – what's the right way to do this? Well, they would scare us, coerce us possibly, into searching our cars. It's not something that a police officer can legally do. They can't search your car without your consent, but then they would tell us things like – If you don't let us search your car, that we will arrest you and your parents will have to come get you out of jail, which is ridiculous. They couldn't do that. They wouldn't do that, but that's the the type of thing they would tell us. uh, So they, you know, could go through our cars. Uh, And that happened many times uh, when I was a kid. So anyway, uh, this lady accuses us, uh, a female police officer accuses us of drag racing, uh, which we were not doing. And another police officer comes up and I am, uh, facing away from Jeff's car. Uh, and the officer comes up to me and says, Hey, do you have a license on you? And I said, yeah, I got a license right here. And I reached my hand inside my coat, uh, for that pocket, which in retrospect, probably is where someone would have a gun. Uh, the next thing I knew He had spun me around and slammed my head up against the car. (laughs) Uh, My other hand, my hand that was not inside my coat uh, was free. And he pinned that arm behind my back and was pressing me hard enough that I could not get my other hand uh, out of the coat. Uh, And then he was leaning against me and holding my head uh, up against Jeff's car. To which Jeff told the other officer, uh, that if my head had dented his car, they were going to have to pay for that. (laughs) Jeff always had a sense of humor, uh, in these situations. So, uh, anyway, then I explained to the officer that I was reaching for my wallet and he, uh, released my arm a little bit and let me pull my hand out of the coat. And, um, I unzipped my coat and opened it and I, think he even retrieved my wallet for me. Uh, and he said, that's not a good thing to do is stick your arm in your coat like that. And I agreed with him after that, after the, uh, uh, cobwebs were shook off uh, from my head. But, um, uh, that, um, stuck with me. I think that was the first time an adult, uh, you know, uh, had actually, when you're a kid, you don't, realize, I mean, you think like how strong adults, like you think your dad, like you think I'll never be as strong as my dad, you know? Um, and and when that guy, and, and, you know, in retrospect thinking if I was 16, 17, I mean, he was probably 10 years older than me or less, you know, this wasn't an older officer. This was a guy in his twenties. So he was probably 10 years older than me, but he was a lot stronger than me. (laughs) I learned that lesson real quick. Um, and that's, that's where I learned it with my head, uh, pinned up against Jeff's car. So that, um, when I think of the stories, when I start thinking of stories about the hardest, uh, times that I've ever been hit in my life, that is one, uh, that normally comes up in that conversation. Uh, but that's number six on the list. And number five on the list also involves a similar, uh, maneuver. You would think I would learn my lesson. Uh, but this didn't take place on the streets. This took place in the Atlanta international is an international in the Atlanta airport. I think it's international. I don't know. Um, but, uh, the year was probably 1995, six, somewhere around there. Uh, and I had started working uh, for the FAA and I was traveling around, Uh, doing networking, like fixing network issues and upgrading PCs. And uh, this was a time when our PCs had uh, both 3Com network cards and uh, SMC network cards. And we decided that it would be easiest to support the field if they all had one brand of network card. And we decided to go with 3Com. So uh, I had traveled out to Atlanta And I had replaced all of their network cards, uh, the SMC ones, with uh, three comp cards. And I could ship them back, but I just decided to put all these network cards in my backpack. Uh, Also, I was getting ready to hook up my first network at home. I was still learning about networks. Um, We were running Novell uh, 3.1 servers at work but uh, I had heard about windows. Uh, I think it was windows NT or windows for work groups, one or the other at the time. And, and I wanted to set up a network at my house. And uh, so there was all this leftover network cable. So I shoved all that in my bag to bring back with me as well. So a coworker of mine and I, uh, my dear friend, Judy, were, uh, had gone to the Atlanta airport and we were on our way home. And we're standing in this security line and they're running people's bags uh, through the X-ray machine. And the X-ray machine, the conveyor belt just stops. I mean, just out of nowhere, just stops. And I look up at the screen. This is when you could see what they were looking at as well. And I see this thing that looks like a giant bomb. It just looks like electronics and wires everywhere. And I realize that this is my backpack. (laughs) My backpack is full of network cables and wires, and it looks very suspicious. And so I started approaching the x-ray thing, and I said, oh, let me explain what that is. And a guy said, back away from the x-ray machine. He didn't say it like that, though. He said it very quickly and loudly. Uh, And I kept walking towards it, And when I turned to address that guy, he shoved me up against the little retainer wall thing, uh, and grabbed me. And, um, I said, it's computer stuff or whatever. And he released me pretty quickly, uh, and they ran it through and then they looked at it or whatever. And then they, and then my bag pooped out the other side and they sent me on my way. That was the end of it. But, uh. It was a very sudden thing. And it was, um, you know, even with the local police, I, I was never really worried about going to jail or doing anything like that. But this was the first time that I remember thinking, uh, like this could go badly. Like, I remember that guy grabbing me from behind and thinking this, these people aren't kidding around, you know? Uh, and I hit the wall pretty hard. <laughs> I hit the wall pretty hard, uh, to make number five on this list. So it hurt pretty good. And, uh, yeah, that's really, I don't mess around in airports. Uh, when I go through the TSA, I say, yes, sir. No, sir. Um, sometimes I wear my FAA badge. It really doesn't help you. Uh, and I try to do the pre-screening if it's available, Uh, but, um, but those guys have a lot of frustration and some of them are pretty strong. (laughs) So, uh, don't make something that uh, looks like a bomb and try to pass it through the x-ray thing because they will not be very lenient with you. Uh, or at least they weren't with me. So that, uh, getting stopped at the airport security is number five, uh, on uh, this episode's list. The number four. Uh, time, the fourth hardest hit that I ever took is another skateboarding story. Now this took place in, uh, I'm going to say the winter of 89. Uh, so it would have been, you know, uh, November, December, maybe of 89, possibly, uh, January or February, 1990. But sometime during that time, it was cold and it was around uh, Christmas time. And there was a local church, uh, I say local, probably 10 miles away that had set up, uh, you know how sometimes churches will set up like, uh, free moon bounce or free things like that. Uh, and then you go to that, you take your kids to that, uh, and then they use it as an advertising thing for their church. And that's perfectly fine. You know, that, that's, um. Uh, a way that they get people to come in from the community and and uh, people from the church invite their friends to come to these free events. Uh, and so this church had set up an entire skateboard area. Skateboarding, again, was very popular during this time, and they had set up, I mean, this had to be a an uh, insurance liability nightmare, I would think, much more than letting somebody borrow a luggage cart at Holiday Inn. Uh, you know, they were... These things like uh, long strips of wood that would have metal coping on them so you could slide your skateboard on them, do rail slides and grinds, uh, and little jump ramps. And kids had their bicycles, and you could do jump ramps and things. And then they built a giant half pipe. I mean, this was the biggest half pipe and nicest half pipe that I had ever seen in person. Of course, I'd seen them in movies and, and ESPN, you know, things like that, but not local to me. It was eight foot tall and had a big flat, uh, you know, in the middle. I mean, nice transition, everything. This was a beautiful looking ramp. Now here's the thing. My friends and I didn't really want to go to some strange church that we didn't know anybody at and take our skateboards and risk, you know, them asking us who we were what are we doing there? You know, did we want to come inside? No, 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 no to all these things. Uh, so I got a great idea. I said, listen, uh, number one, these people are not going to be out here Saturday morning. I mean, it was like a Sunday kind of thing, you know, I mean, they, they left all this stuff set up in the parking lot. And I said, they're surely not going to be here at 6 a.m. Uh, on Saturday morning. So that's what we're going to do. So I told all my friends, listen, everybody set your alarms for 5 AM Saturday morning. I'll pick everybody up. I think we took two cars of people. We were all going to bring our skateboards and, uh, we're going to go skate this ramp. So everybody said, great. Yep. 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 We're going to do that. Uh, so that Saturday morning came We got, we picked everybody up. We got our skateboards and we drove to this parking lot. Of course, um, they had like the metal gate out front, you know, but we climbed the gate and we go in, we've got our skateboards and, um, there's this giant ramp. Now I had never dropped in on a ramp before I had, there was a a guy in my neighborhood that had a quarter pipe, you know, which is just one half of a half pipe. And, and we, we would, um, Uh, you know, you would get a lot of speed and go up the ramp and then we couldn't get enough speed to shoot into the air, but you would go up and do a kick turn, like just turn around 180 degrees and come back down. Um, so, but I didn't want to do that. Dropping in was where you stand at the top of the ramp on your skateboard, you lean forward, uh, and you just start skating. Now, if you, uh, lean too far back, which is what normally happens. People are afraid to lean far enough forward. So they don't lean far enough forward. And what happens is they basically fall straight down like Wiley Cody, and the skateboard zooms out from under them and and they uh, just fall on their backs, you know? So I knew that, and I knew uh, that was a possibility. So everybody said, if you're you're going to do it. Well, I should say this. Uh, we, we tried to get, we were trying to figure out who was going to go first and nobody wanted to go. And because this was my idea, I kind of, uh, got either elected or volunteered to go first. So, uh, I, I climb up this thing and let me tell you, eight foot seems really tall when you're standing on top of it. You know, uh, I recently tried to uh, help my father do something. He needed a repair to his roof. And I put a ladder and I climbed all the way up to the side of the house and I got up to the roof and I was like, I don't want to fall from this height anymore. When I was a kid, we used to jump off the roof. But, uh, now at 42, I just think all my bones would break <laughs> like every bone, every one of them. Like you have 206 bones, isn't that right? And I would just break them all. Uh, so I had climbed up to this ramp and I had my skateboard and I teetered it over the edge like you're supposed to. And I knew that if you didn't lean far enough forward uh, that the the skateboard would fall out from under your feet. So I leaned forward as far as I could, and I literally just fell eight foot straight down and landed on my head. <laughs> uh, and not only did I get the wind knocked out of me, but I hit my head. So I was all dizzy and discombobulated, and I couldn't breathe. I really thought... That might be uh, the end for me, (laughs) that I was going to die in a strange church parking lot on their their skate uh, equipment. And I laid there making those noises that you make, those involuntary noises when you get the wind knocked out of you, and everybody stood there looking at me. Uh, and finally I collected myself and I said, who's next? And they all said, nope, we're, we're good. (laughs) Nobody else wanted to try. And that was the end of that. We all got in the car. It was about 10 after six in the morning. Uh, and we all drove back home. Uh, but, um, that again, it's another one of those things. When I drive by that church every time, when I look into their parking lot, mentally, I can see where that ramp was uh, and I could see uh, where, uh, you know, I had, I took that fall. That was a hard, hard hit. And that is why, uh, it is uh, number four on the list. So believe it or not, there are three more that are worse than that. Uh, number three on the list is really my only karate story. Now I had, um, I was pretty good at karate. I, I, um, I don't, I wasn't as physically talented as a lot of the other kids that I took karate with, but, and this isn't a dig at them, but I think I was smarter than a lot of them. So, uh, I wasn't as strong and I wasn't always as fast, but I was a faster thinker. So, uh, you know, if someone did the same thing, I would predict like when we were sparring, I would predict, Uh, what someone was going to do, or I would do, I had these little cheat things I would do. Like, um, I remember, uh, I had this thing, like when you were sparring for some with uh, someone and, uh, if you would try to, to, um, punch them or kick them or whatever, a lot of times people would, would scoot away, you know, I mean, scoot back real quick. So I did a thing where I would kind of jump forward, like I was going to do something but my whole plan was I would step on their front foot. And so then when they would go to scoop back, I had their foot locked and then they would lose balance. And then I would yeah, give them a good chop, you know. <laughs> and so uh, anyway, when I was 15, I had been in uh, karate. American Taekwondo is what it was actually. And um, I had been taking karate from third grade all the way through. Uh, this would have been eighth grade. Um, no, a uh, 10th grade. I mean, this was literally, I kind of quit going to karate around the time I got my driver's license. So, uh, so, you know, I, I had been doing it for a long time and I was testing for my brown belt and, uh, the place where I went would not let you get your black belt until you were 18. So I, and this, and I was 15, so I knew that I was going to be a brown belt if I got it for three years. And that was one of the things where I, I kind of. Uh, lost interest, but anyway, uh so I had gone in for my brown belt test, and we had to do all these things. we had to kick and do uh, forms and show technique and do all these things and then we had to spar and there were There were a few different things uh, that we had to do while we were sparring, and uh, we had to fight four two minute fights uh, against a different person each time, so there was a two minute fight. And then you would take a break and they would bring in a fresh person, another two-minute fight. And you did four of those. And then you had to fight two two two-minute fights against two people. And you had to fight two people at the same time, which is not really uh, as – I mean, in the street, you would probably – it would be much more difficult. But in a karate dojo thing with padded floor and stuff, it's really not that big of a deal. The the trick is – uh, to keep moving backwards the entire time. And so when you're moving backwards, it, it's kind of like a V shape. Whereas if you stand still, then they surround you like in a straight line, and then you have people on each side of you, and it's kind of difficult to um, to defend. But as long as you're moving backwards, these people are kind of both chasing you, you know. And so um, uh, I, I was in the middle of the last uh, last fight. So it was against two people and it was the sixth fight and I was winded. I was really tired. And, uh, so what happened was one of the guys, uh, kicked me and it wasn't like a a kick that would score. He kicked me in the arm, but it knocked me backwards. And there were, um, bench seats that went all the way around the edge of the place where I took karate. And so people would sit there. Uh, but that meant that the mat where we fought, re- I mean, their their feet, people's feet were on the mat. There was like no space outside the mat. So this guy kicked me and I flew backwards and landed on the laps of all these people. And so I turned, so I'm facing, you know, the people that I'm fighting, obviously. But um I turned my head to look at the people that I had just landed on. And then the people I had just landed on pushed me forward, like pushed me up off of them. So now I'm flying forward, but my head is kind of turned around backwards. Like I'm looking at the people. And when I turned my head back around, this guy punched me right in the face. Um, And of course we were wearing padded stuff and you weren't supposed to hit someone in the face. You were supposed to hit them in the back of the head or the chest or the groin. Uh, but, um, yeah, he clocked me right in the jaw and it knocked me out. So I, I remember, uh, flying forward like that. And the next thing I remember was I woke up and there was a man on top of me with his hand in my mouth and I started trying to fight and they were trying to hold me down. Uh, it was really scary. And, um, what had happened was when, when the kid hit me, my mouthpiece, had flown out of my mouth, but no one saw it and so when I fell down, and the guy came over to check on me, uh, they thought that my mouthpiece they thought I had swallowed it they thought it that it was in my um uh, you know airway, and so that 's what he was checking for but when you wake up and there 's a stranger 's hands in your mouth it 's kind of a scary uh, experience. And so, uh, anyway, I think I got like a, I, that was the last fight. And so, um, you know, they called it off and I did get my Brown belt and I was really proud of that. Um, you know, I, I'd had some trouble with neighborhood bullies when I was a kid and, and other stuff. I, I never had a problem after that. Mostly just because I learned that, um, other than getting hit in the nose, <laughs> I didn't like getting hit in the nose. Uh, but other than that, most of the time when you get hit, it doesn't hurt that much. You know? Um, I mean, if someone punches you in the arm or even in the the cheek or the face or something like that, it's not like the movies where you hit a guy and they knock out. I mean, you, if you get hit, then you just go, Ugh, and then you're still standing there, you know? And so, uh, that really took, uh, the fear, uh, karate in general took the fear of getting hit out of me. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so that was, um, definitely one to remember that karate place is long gone. Uh, it was in a part of town that was, uh, I don't know what you'd call it, but they, it was like old buildings and things. And they tore it all down. Um, it's that regentrification. gentrification they built. Unfortunately, they built like a CVS and a Walgreens, like right on the two corners right there where the karate place used to be. Um, so uh, yeah, definitely missed that. I, I've actually kind of wished at times that I'd stuck with that just for the the uh, exercise and the activity. And uh, and now I'm too out of shape to just go join back up right now and do that. But uh, that, that was certainly a fun thing. But that is uh, that story is number three on the list, and for a reason. Uh, when you get knocked out, no fun. Number two is another story that involves ice. Uh, and, um, this took place in, uh, either Spokane or Seattle. I I was up in uh, Washington state. This is when I was, I'd started working for the FAA and I'd moved up there and, uh, they had, uh, it would, they had winters up there that lasted six months. We had something called, uh, they called it six month snow. It would snow. I remember there was snow on the ground, um, before, Halloween and the same snow would be there on Easter. I mean, it just didn't go away. It was there forever. Uh, and there was always icy patches and things like that. And, uh, so anyway, I had some people in from out of work and we were going somewhere. I don't remember. Uh, but, uh, I was all dressed up in work clothes. So I had on a, uh, a white shirt, uh, you know, tucked in into dockers with a tie, and uh, we had these Jeep Cherokees uh, that we could use for work. So uh, there were people, they had climbed into these Jeep Cherokees and they, they set up just a little bit off the ground, you know, they weren't like monster trucks, but they were a little high to get into. And so, uh, I, I was driving and so I, I, uh, opened the driver's side door and I couldn't get my right leg up into Uh, The car was too high up. So I decided to try to swing my leg up to get up into this Jeep. And I'm in between the two cars. There's a car to the left, a car to the right. We're in the parking lot. I'm standing in between them, getting ready to swing my leg up. Uh, So I swung my leg up to get up in the car and didn't realize I was standing on ice. So when I swung my right leg up, my left leg shot out as well. So both legs shot up into the air and I fell down and the first thing to hit the ground uh, was my head. And uh, I kind of blacked out for a moment. I'm sure this is really the only time in my life, maybe, um, I I may have felt like this, but I'm pretty sure this is the only time that I may have actually got a concussion (laughs) Uh, because I remember seeing the tunnel vision and it just, everything was kind of dark And, uh, you know, not only was there ice, but of course there was like water and slush on the ground too. And now I was laying in it. And so I was just laying between these two, uh, cars and then I look up and I could see the people inside the cars, like looking out the window at me and someone asked if I was okay. And I sat up and I immediately threw up, which I think is a sign uh, of a concussion and, uh, so anyway, someone else drove, <laughs> they did not let me drive. Um, but that I did not feel right for a couple of days after that. And my wife has had a couple of concussions. Uh, she's gone to the doctor and the doctor actually told her quit having concussions. Uh, and her last one was, um, she had hung a, uh, large wooden sign over the entryway of our back door. And she came inside from outside and, and shut the door. And when she did the wood thing, it was like a Three Stooges deal. <laughs> it fell and it hit her in the head. Uh, and we had to go to the hospital because she was all acting loopy. And the doctor was like, "Yes, this is a concussion, and you need to quit having them." Uh, so she's very cognizant now. When we go, um, like when we go to amusement rides or to the uh, Frontier City or to the the fair, and she won't ride certain rides because she's afraid of uh, getting more concussions. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, yeah, that was, uh, uh, a really hard hit and there was nothing. It happened so fast that I couldn't brace myself. I couldn't stop my fall with my hands. My feet were in the air. It was just, my head went straight to the concrete and that uh, gets it. Number two, uh, on this list. Number one, the hardest I have ever been hit in my life happened on December 3rd, 1998. I have written a blog entry about this a long time ago uh and but I don't think that I've ever told this story in its entirety on the podcast. Uh I bought a Chevy Astro minivan because I had gone to a car show and saw one that a guy had completely customized and I thought it was the greatest thing ever and so I decided that's what I wanted to do and so I bought a Chevy Astro. Uh, but the one I had was a piece of crap. Um, I wanted to put a huge stereo system in it, and uh, one time I turned on the air conditioner, and it just made this loud pop noise, and smoke came out of the vents. (laughs) That was the last time the air conditioner ever worked, and there were many things like that wrong with this van, Uh, and um, uh, one of the things that was wrong with it was uh, the fuel gauge did not work. So Uh, on December 3rd, 1998, my wife and I went to uh, dinner and we were coming home and the van ran out of gas. I ran the van out of gas. I should take ownership of that. And we coasted over to the side of the road. Now this is before either of us had uh, a cell phone. So where we ran out of gas was on the side of the interstate and we had two options. Uh, We could walk backwards uh, a little over a mile and go to uh, the, there were gas stations there that were basically big truck stops, or we could keep walking forward and go about three fourths of a mile and then walk up this exit and then walk to my dad's house. It was still going to be another couple of miles from there, but, uh, but that was, you know, pretty much our best bet. So that's what we decided to do. Uh, let me paint this picture for you. It is around nine o'clock at night. It is raining lightly. I am wearing, uh, blue jeans. Is that wearing blue jeans? Yeah, I think so. Uh, a black long sleeve t shirt and a black Star Wars hat. Um, I don't remember what my wife is wearing. Uh, So we start walking and I'm walking on the shoulder of the road. My wife is walking on the grass and she keeps telling me, get off the shoulder, get off the shoulder. And I said, I don't want to walk in the grass because it's getting wet and it's slippery over there. And she said, well, it's better than, you know, you're going to get hit. And I'm like, you, you can't, nobody gets hit uh, you know, walking down the side of the interstate. So we come to, uh, an area where there's like a side guardrail and I'm going to walk on the left-hand side of it. So I'm going to walk on the, uh, the actual side, uh, you know, uh, of the interstate. And my wife says, no, get over here on the other side of the guardrail. So I said, fine. Uh, so I went around and we were walking. So we're, we're on the backside of the guardrail and I heard a sound. I heard a car skidding and I looked, uh, and I caught a glimpse of a pickup sliding sideways towards me. Uh, the best we can piece together is that I jumped, I jumped up into the air. If I hadn't have jumped the car would have just driven over me, uh, and killed me instantly. Um, it hit the guardrail and then it hit me. Uh, so I I jumped. So my feet were off the air. So instead of it driving over me, it hit me like a baseball bat hitting a baseball. And it shot me about 30 feet down into this ravine where I landed. It was all muddy. Uh, and, um, of course knocked the air out of me, knocked the breath out of me. I couldn't breathe. Uh, and as I laid there and couldn't breathe, I thought, uh, this is it, that I have just been killed and that I am going to die right here. Um, and so Susan, my wife, started running down and saying, oh, my God, are you okay? Are you okay? And I couldn't breathe, so I couldn't answer, you know. And eventually I was able to take a breath in. And when I could, I said, get help. Uh, so she ran back to where this pickup had stopped. And the pickup, uh, there was a lady driving it and her teenage son was in the passenger seat. And she, the the driver pulled out a cell phone and was getting ready to call uh, her husband. Uh, and Susan grabbed the phone from her. And said, you just killed my husband. And the lady had no idea who Susan was or who we were. Now, what happened in the pickup truck was, uh, it depends on whose story you believe. Uh, what I believe the truth is, is that they were driving too fast. They hydroplaned. Uh, and then they lost control. They skidded off the road and hit me. Uh, in the process, when they hit the guardrail, they got a flat tire. Their story later, uh, was that they got the flat tire first and that caused them to lose control and skid and and come over and hit me. It doesn't really matter when you're the person who's been hit, but for insurance purposes, it matters which of those stories, uh, happened. So another car pulled over to assist those people and Susan told the guy, my husband's down there in the ditch, please help him. So the guy came down and I was covered in blood. And the guy said, I don't want to move you. I can't move you. And I said, uh, if I'm going to die, I don't want to die down here in this ditch. And he said, fair enough. So he helped pick me up and we walked to, uh, the underpass, the bridge underpass. And so we got up there and and I sat down and they had called 911 and said that a pedestrian had been hit by a car. We had a auto pedestrian accident on the interstate. Uh, one of the things that had happened was when the truck hit the guardrail, it tore open its gas tank. And so I was covered in gasoline and my eyes were burning. Uh, my, my, like the quick around my fingernails was burning uh, and so I was trying to like wash my hands on the rainwater and wash my face, uh, and so the ambulance pulls up. Uh, and while this is happening, my wife has used the cell phone to call my dad, who's at work. Uh, he worked nights, and she said, "Denny, we ran out of gas. We're on the side of the interstate." And my dad said, "I'll be right there." And she said, "It gets worse," <laughs> and she told him what happened. So. The ambulance shows up and it is a very large black man, uh, paramedic and a very old white guy. Uh, and they have a stretcher and they're asking where the body is. And I say, I'm the body. And they said, oh, we heard you got hit by a car. And I said, I did. And they're kind of joking. They say, well, it looks like the truck is totaled. (laughs) And I'm like, yeah, (laughs) you know, but I'm okay. So. I'm like, well, I guess we need to go to the hospital. They're like, oh no no yeah, you're not moving. Uh, you need to get on this stretcher. We need to put a neck thing on you. And I was like, no, I I walked from from down there, and they're like, oh yeah, no, you could have any number of injuries right now. You need to get on this. So I get on uh, this stretcher, and they put the neck brace on me, and they strap me to all this stuff, and then they're trying to get me into the ambulance. And then my dad pulls up. So my dad pulls up and he comes running and he's smoking and he's like, what happened? What happened? And I'm like, dad, get away. I'm covered in gas. (laughs) I was so afraid he was going to set me on fire. Uh, But um, so this, the large black guy is holding the part of the stretcher where my feet is. And this feeble old man is trying to lift my head. And I'm telling the the guy, the black guy, I'm like, will you switch sides with him because he's gonna drop my head? <laughs> and he's like, yeah, brother, I got you. And so he comes over and he lifts up the the front end because I was so sure they were gonna drop me, you know. And so uh, they get me in the ambulance, and they're driving, and I was like, so um the uh, the the black guy he got in the back of the ambulance with me, and the other guy was driving. And so we're going to the hospital and my, and my wife is now in the car following us in my my dad's car. And, um, I start talking to the guy and I'm like, listen, I'm a computer guy. I'm very logical. You need to tell me what's going on. I said, if I don't know what's going on, I'm freaking out, you know? And he's like, okay, well, you know, you got hit. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I know all that. You know, I'm like, why is it freezing in this ambulance? And he said, it's not freezing. Uh, you're, you're going into shock. And I was like, oh, and so he's putting the, the oxygen on me, you know, and he's feeling my stomach. Like he's pressing around on my stomach. And I said, um, you know, what are you doing? He's like, I'm seeing that everything is where it's supposed to be. You know, he was feeling, I mean, there's blood all over my arm. My shirt is, uh, uh, torn and, um, you know, he's trying to, to see what injuries I have. So I get to the hospital. And they wheel me into the uh, to the ER and they do a, a scan uh, like I uh, I don't know what it is, like an MRI or a CAT scan. I don't know, but they do a body scan and they put me in the ER and uh, the first thing they do, everything that your mother ever told you about wearing clean underwear was right. Uh, they come in with a pair of scissors and cut my pants off. They literally just cut my the leg of my pants up both sides and pull my pants off. Uh, and my shirt was all shredded and they just pulled my shirt off and they put a little blanket over me and that was it. Now I have in a frame, a small picture frame, I have a square of that shirt. My wife put a square of that shirt in a picture frame. Uh, and there's a quarter in that frame too, which is, um, uh, from a completely different story, but it was a a lucky quarter. Let's just say that. So, uh, uh, anyway. The doctor gets my x-rays and stuff and he comes in and he says, he starts telling the nurse that he's got the wrong x-rays, that it can't be mine. And I'm like, why do you say that? And he said, because there's nothing, I don't see anything. Uh, I got four stitches on my elbow because my elbow uh, took the, the initial impact of the car before it hit me, you know, kind of like right, right in the the side, the fleshy part of your back, you know? And he says, you know, if that would have hit you like six inches over, that would have just broken your back. So if I'd have been on the other side of the guardrail, I would have been dead. If I hadn't jumped, I would have been dead. If I'd have been six inches over, I would have been dead. I mean, there's a lot of variables that uh, uh, go into play. (laughs) It was really, really crazy. So they went and they actually did another scan. uh, And he came back and he said... You're, everything's there. He says, you're going to be sore tomorrow. And he was right. I ended up with a bruise on my back about the size of a medium pizza. I mean, it was about 12 inches, maybe bigger. And it was round. And that bruise turned every color of the rainbow. I mean, it was green, it was yellow, it was red, it was brown, purple, blue, you name it. I mean, it went every color. And uh, as things started swelling, it swelled and pressed against my sciatic nerve, which I didn't know what a sciatic nerve was until all of this happened. Uh, And so my leg burned. I couldn't walk very well. I went to a doctor and I said, how long will this last? And he said, I have no idea. He said, do you tell me? He said, I don't even know if it's permanent, you know, but, um, it took a couple of weeks and the swelling went down and the, uh, the pain of the sciatic nerve went away. And, uh, I have a relatively bad back. I don't volunteer to help people move as much as I used to. And sometimes my back, hurts when I stand around, stand still for a long time, or I'm in the car for a long time. But, uh, all things considered, that was a small price to pay. I have a little tiny scar on my elbow. You can barely even see it anymore, but it's, uh, that my back are really the, uh, reminder of, uh, of that day, but, uh, getting hit by a pickup truck. Oh, so I, I need to, uh, to follow up with this, the Uh, when we called insurance and all this, and they contacted the other lady's insurance, this was the first time we heard that about the flat tire theory. Now the flat tire, if, if, um, she had hydroplane from driving too fast, then that means that's her fault. She was driving too fast for conditions and she would be liable for paying, uh, my hospital bills or whatever. If there was a blowout and it was purely an accident, Then that was, I believe they said act of God. And based on that, they were not responsible, uh, for paying for my hospital or not for paying as much. Now I did not want to, uh, sue these people for monetary gain or, you know, on TV, all pain and suffering. I didn't want any of that, but I did think it would be fair that they covered the hospital and an ambulance ride after they ran over me. And so I did a, uh, over the phone testimony, just telling the story and I didn't have to go to court or anything. Uh, and the insurance companies worked it out and their insurance did pay, uh, for the hospital bills, but that was a, um, insurance places are Weasley. I'm sorry. <laughs> but, um, uh, but yeah, that's, um, it is a, a strip of road that is right near my house. And so, uh, when I drive by it, I mean, I could still see it. My dad went the next day and took pictures. So I have pictures of the guardrail and where my car was and you can see the skid marks and and you can see everything, you know? Um, so when I am out and about, if you ever see me, I tend to walk way away from the roadway. Now I don't let my kids walk near the roadway. And that is why, um, people, you know, will say, uh, uh, you know, if you're walking or something, so I've told people before, I've said, you know, uh, trust me, it doesn't feel good to get hit by a car. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, that is definitely the hardest uh, I have been hit by anything in my life. So there you go. There is a uh, a top 10 list. That is number one. Uh, so we went from a kid in kindergarten punching me in the belly uh, over a, a lost Oreo, to, uh, getting hit by a car doing 70 miles an hour on the interstate and, uh, almost killing me. So uh, that concludes this episode of you don't know flack as always. Thanks for listening guys. And I will talk to you, uh, on the next episode that wraps up another episode of you don't know flack. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you'd like to send me feedback about this episode or any other episode of you don't know flack, you can email me at robohara at RoboHara.com. Contact me on Twitter at Commodork. Follow the show on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash you don't know flack. That's all one word. Or leave me voicemail on the You Don't Know Flack podcast hotline at area code 405-486-YDKF. You Don't Know Flack is available from iTunes, Stitcher Radio, the You Don't Know Flack RSS feed, and through throwbacknetwork.net, your home for quality retro podcasts. If you'd like to hear more podcasts from me, check out my Commodore 64 themed podcast Sprite Castle at spritecastle.com and Throwback Reviews at throwbackreviews.com. Both of these shows are also available at throwbacknetwork.net. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time on another episode of You Don't Know Flack.